Once upon a time, in a land far away, I'm Katrina, and I'm Jeff, and welcome to the Fairy Tellers Podcast. Myth, legend, folklore, fable. We explore what they say about cultures then and now. Grab a hot cup of cocoa and a comfy seat while we retell you a thing. Welcome back to the podcast. And when I say that, I mean, Jeff, uh, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. And also me. Welcome back to the podcast and me. Welcome back. Everyone is welcome back to the podcast. So October uh, was a lot. It has been a full month also since I've had the time to even to talk to Jeff. It's been a very sad month. Or like longer than that. Like six weeks. Yeah, because... We record, I mean, we like very quickly did the live in September. So we talked to each other for that like hour of the live. Yeah. And then when we did a surprise live in October, we talked for that like hour, but we didn't talk before or after that. <laughs> Just like some quick messages to each other of like, how's your life going? Awful. How about you? I'm having the best time of my life. That that was you. <laughs> <laughs> that was me. Which would come as a surprise to some of the people listening to this podcast, I'm sure. Yeah. October was pretty rough for me. I was healing from some medical stuff, which I just had my last doctor's appointment recently. And it looks like my kidneys are doing good. And so I'm on the mend. Nice. Yeah. I'm excited about that. But in October, it was all very rough. And also in October, I got to go to the American Folklore Society Conference, which was a bright spot in my time. It was absolutely incredible, uh, but extremely exhausting. Mm. And then my husband's grandfather died, which was very unexpected, uh, still really raw. And we kind of had to drop everything and go out to be with his family funeral things and you know kids school and we made it back uh in town in time for my kids to trick-or-treat in my neighborhood and they were wearing costumes which yeah if you're wondering why we didn't do a podcast episode uh last month listen i got my kids halloween costumes finished <laughs> so that's sorry <laughs> priorities yeah priorities i do care very much about producing uh quality content for the podcast but also I, yeah, didn't get a, a lot of anything done in October. And then at the same time, I got a lot of other things done in October. So, yeah, it was you a accomplished a lot, but none of the things that you would like to have been accomplished. <laughs> yeah, no, that's yeah, that's like 100 percent, 100 percent. That is what it was. So that's why we uh, did a surprise live on our Instagram. And I hope everybody enjoyed the recorded version of that that we posted. I heard from people that it was a really fun episode. So hopefully people heard it. Uh, the corpse that died four times, great tale, mm. grandfather's eyeballs, disgusting. Um, <laughs> I'm still, my skin's still crawling from just like imagining these, the, the bowl of eyes that they were digging through. I'm very upset by it. I thought it was a really fun episode. And I was yeah. surprised for the fact that it was a complete surprise. We had people like show up. We did. So it was fun recording it. It was truly the only thing that we had time to do. Yeah. We had an hour 
Yeah, we like had to squeeze that in too yeah. between other stuff. Yeah, because that was um it was at night. Oh right, cuz it was the next day I was leaving town, but that night I had gotten back from a thing at my kid's school. Oh, yeah, man, everything is a blur. <laughs> I'm realizing right now like, oh wow, that was a lot. So anyway, I'm glad to be back. I'm glad to be getting back into the podcast. This whole year has been a lot for us. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I apologize for kind of how all over the place our schedule's been this year, posting and whatnot. Because <laughs> we, we took like May off uh, so that we could kind of like recalibrate, do some grad school stuff, other things. And then a couple months later, I ended up hospitalized. And it, man, this has been like a whole mess. So thanks for everyone sticking with us and listening. So before we get too far into things and the incredible episode that we have literally been planning for a, a month. <laughs> <laughs> it's been just sitting on my whiteboard as the next episode for over a month. It's wild. But before we get too far into things, some announcements. So the most important announcement of all, and I hope everyone is listening, is that I have been saying Dr. Gina Jorgensen's name wrong the entire time. The whole time. As have I. We've been saying Dr. Jenna Jorgensen. Nobody has corrected us. Nobody has said anything. It is Dr. Gina Jorgensen. I had the absolute privilege <laughs> of getting to hang out with her at the American Folklore Society conference. She did not say anything. She listens to this podcast. She did not say anything to me uh, about how I'd been saying her name wrong the entire time. But a couple people who've known her for years said her name out loud. They were like, oh, do you want to talk to Gina? Do you want to talk? Do you want me to introduce you to Gina? Have you met her yet? Oh, Gina's over here. And I was like, who are they talking about? Because <laughs> in my head, I was like, isn't that Jenna? And then I realized, no. And I said to somebody, wait, is her name Gina? And they were like, yeah. <laughs> and when I say that I wanted to crawl into a hole and die, <laughs> Jeff, Jeff knows what I mean, because I told Jeff uh, that we'd been saying oh, her man. name wrong, and he immediately was like, uh. <laughs> I wanted to crawl into a hole and die. But okay, Katrina, in our defense... It's kind of what we're known for on the Fairy Tailors podcast is yeah. mispronouncing words, especially people's names. So yeah. Dr. Gina Jorgensen just joins that list that includes, you know, some of just absolutely world-renowned individuals. Yeah. In us being completely unable to pronounce their names correctly. Yeah. In fact, uh Gina, let me tell you that if you go back and listen to the episode, Yorinda and <laughs> what is his name? Jorangel, I need everybody to know that I was saying Jorinda and Jorangel the entire time. And I didn't realize it until I was like editing it. And I was like, I'm pretty sure that sounds so wrong that now that I'm hearing it, it sounds 100% wrong. And I went back and I found somebody else saying it. And it was Jorinda and Jorangel and 
Jeff and I had to do some insane editing on that episode. So, <laughs> so Gina, what I'm saying is, uh, it's not you, it's me. I'm the problem. <laughs> I'm the problem, it's me. <laughs> Thank you, Taylor Swift. And in relation, and maybe segue into the episode, I consulted Dr. Gina Jorgensen's Folklore 101 book in my preparation for this episode. Yes. Because I came across a word in my research that I knew what it meant because of her book, but I wanted to also go back to the book to make sure I like fully understood what the concept was. Yeah. And the book was very helpful in doing that. That's perfect. And I want to say that Dr. Gina Jorgensen, she was really cool about it. And I apologized to her and she was like, no worries. You've always spelled it right. And that's what matters way more to me. So So this is my public apology and a reminder to go and grab her books, Folklore 101 and Fairy Tales 101. So the second announcement is that December has a Fifth Friday in it. Jeff and I are still trying to figure out if we want to do another Fifth Friday Fable Fest for that month. Obviously, we want to. Yes. But whether we are going to actually feasibly be able to accomplish it is... Another matter entirely. Yeah. That Friday is New Year's Eve Eve. And Jeff always throws a giant New Year's Eve Eve party that night. I do. (laughs) It's an absolute rager because I don't want to have to be groggy at the New Year's Day parade. So I'm not staying up on New Year's Eve. Yeah. That would be madness. New Year's Eve Eve makes much more sense for a party. But no, truly, Jeff and I at this point, we don't know where in the country we'll be on that night. And what our internet situation will be. So we'll keep you posted. And especially if you are following us on our Instagram, the fairy underscore tellers, then you'll know whether or not we actually, you know, have one or not, or you'll know when we go live or we'll probably, that's one of the quickest ways we can announce stuff since, you know, if we only post an episode once every three months, (laughs) no, uh, (laughs) once every couple weeks, obviously news doesn't get to people fast, but it gets to you faster if you're on, um, if you follow us on Instagram. So you can follow us on Instagram if you want to, or you'll just be surprised when we post the audio sometime in January, if we have one. Um, So yeah, we'll keep you posted. But on to the episode. So we teased this episode a little bit, the last episode. And by the last episode, I mean uh, the Dodo episode. In September, (laughs) mid-September. Ooh. Um, so this is an audience member request, and I'm excited to be doing this episode. A couple episodes back, I said that this is a cryptid adjacent podcast, because <laughs> not only does the subject matter that we talk about pair really nicely with cryptid stories, but also a lot of our audience are probably people who really enjoy stories of cryptids from all over the world. So it makes sense that Andy from Instagram, and also Andy of Mr. G's Pizza fame. (laughs) Formerly of Mr. G's Pizza. Oh, that's right. Just by the way, I don't know if we've told people this. Our friend Andy, he got a new job in another city, and he ended up selling Mr. G's Pizza, so he doesn't own Mr. G's Pizza anymore, which is very sad for, you know, us. (laughs) Just me personally. (laughs) Yeah. And their cease and desist letter was very nicely worded when they told us to stop making fake commercials for their establishment. (laughs) That didn't happen. Our lawyers would like you to know that that is not true. 
that it did not happen. We received no such letter. Uh, so our friend Andy, he wanted us to do a cryptid episode. And I love that we had friends who were like, am I allowed to make an episode request this year? <laughs> <laughs> like as if because they're our friends, we care less about them as our audience like, or that there's like yes, rules. Yes, you may, but you're going at the bottom of the queue. We'll not get around to it until November or December. Listen, that is true. That is kind of what happened. <laughs> <laughs> Where anytime I had to bump an episode because of our crazy schedule this year, I was like, sorry, this one's going to the bottom of the bear. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just cause I wanted to like, yeah, get to like other audience members that I can't say directly to them. Like, like we are still planning on doing your episode. Sorry. It's going to come at the tail end. Some of the ones that came in later in the year are scheduled for later, but it's fine. Um, also side note, Andy also does our music for the podcast intros and outros. He is incredible. Um, he also wrote a children's book this year that I wanted to pitch during October. Uh, but, oh, yeah, me too. But, but alas, October <laughs> happened. Um, it's obviously still for sale, but it's a delightful book for Halloween time, even though I will point out that nothing about it is specifically Halloween. It's called The Nice Witch, and it's about a witch who is nice. And as we strongly believe here on the Fairy Tellers podcast, you can be a witch at all times of the year, every season, every month, every moment. We do talk about that, yes. And we also think that you should be nice for a similar year-round bit of time. Yes, absolutely. And it is good. My kids love it. They really, really love it. Like, they've, uh, like, asked specifically to read it. And, like, they thought it was cool, like, that they knew who wrote it at first, kind of. Like, they, it was kind of like, oh, okay, you know. And then they read the book, and it's like, oh, this is like a real book. Yeah. And now we know someone that wrote it. Like now after they loved it, they were more excited that they knew the person. That wrote yeah. It. But yeah. It's called the nice, Witch. it's about not looking at someone's house appearance, living situation or whatever and touching them, which is a great or their choice of pet or their, yeah. Or their choice of pet. It is a great year round story and message. Um, the illustrations are beautiful. He hired an illustrator yeah. who did an amazing job. I will drop a link in the podcast description if you want to click over and get a copy of that. So I read my copy to my children all Halloween season long, and I will probably continue to read it because just like Jeff said, like, my kids really enjoyed the book. So even though it is called The Nice Witch and Halloween season is over, it is not a Halloween-specific book. And the name of the illustrator I just looked up, Elena Louise, which I'm probably pronouncing completely <laughs> incorrectly, <laughs> but I wanted to get that name out there so you know, so you can maybe look into more of uh, their work, too. Because, again, when you see the pictures, you'll see, like, oh, this is a very talented person. Yeah, no, the illustrations are, like, very, very detailed. And, like, even on, like, the borders of the picture... Okay, yeah. and fans of the podcast, you'll get that this one thing that I really, really loved was there's like this one picture where the witch is sitting down and she's knitting with, she's like sitting down and she's knitting and her little black cat is playing with the yarn like right next to her. And then in the chair, like opposite her is like a spider that has made a web on the chair. <sighs> And my kids, they both were like, oh, they're weaving together. Oh, my gosh. I have not noticed that. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. And I was like, I oh. love little details. Like well, that. especially because it's like we talk so much about like magic and weaving and like, you know, that imagery. And so, yeah, I just the every page, the illustrations are very detailed, really beautiful. I love it. 
But back to the episode. The moment you've all been waiting for. Cryptids. So Andy wanted specifically some United States-based cryptids. And it's funny because we really don't cover the American continent that much on the podcast. This is for you, America. (laughs) (laughs) So there are a couple cryptids that absolutely deserve their own episode someday. Aliens. Aliens can Mm. be a controversial cryptid topic. I love aliens. But aliens are a, a massive topic. There are sightings around the U.S. and also, like, the world. And there was recently an episode of Unsolved Mysteries on UFOs that shook me. I've believed in aliens for a long time, but I have not believed in them, like, visiting our planet. But in the last, like, five years, I'm becoming, like, increasingly convinced. So, Mm. but we're not doing an alien episode today. Because it sounds like we're going to start a spinoff Truth About the Aliens <laughs> podcast because it's not folklore. We will not treat it as such. Just kidding. It is. It's like it is folklore. People debate on whether or not true, it counts. It can be folklore. Yeah. 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 And people debate on whether or not aliens should be considered a cryptid or not, which I think is interesting that there's. Right. Like that. Yeah. Interesting debate. And the aliens as a topic, absolutely like huge topic. So not not the point of this episode. Also, Bigfoot, Yeti, Sasquatch. In the U.S., there are tons of state-specific versions of a uh, wild man, is what they're ge- like called like in general. <laughs> and lake monsters. Oh, man. Monsters in every single lake. There are so many of them. There's like a pothole that gets really full when it rains out here, and that even has a folklore about... A, a monster that lives in it. Yeah, it's called Potty. <laughs> yeah, how'd you know? Yes, Potty the Pothole Monster. <laughs> Some people think it's a load of crap, but I believe. <laughs> okay. Oof, that, that absolutely slayed me. Uh, <laughs> Jeff, listen, I've missed you so much. Just like, like on a personal note, um, I, I need this. I need this energy in my life. Woof. So anyway, yeah, like tons of lake monsters. And yeah, a lot of them all have like some take on the word Nessie. It's basically whatever the name of the lake is, they put that letter in front e. of. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Jesse, Lessie, Bessie. Messy was one of them. And I'm like, messy is a word. It's fine. Yeah. And not the topic of this. So if you came looking for these ones. Yeah. Take a hike. (laughs) But not in the woods. There's monsters out there. Uh, (laughs) And then there are also some topics with cryptids that are less fun, like co-opting Native American religious figures or cultural heroes and turning them into monsters that are terrifying white settlers. So that's a whole other episode. You know, the theme would be deeply problematic cryptids. So truly, there are so many topics in a million directions (laughs) that we could take a suggestion for a cryptids episode. But for this one, we're going to try and keep it light and fun because October was hard enough for me. And uh, I think we all just need some levity in November. (laughs) I need some levity in November. Deeply problematic cryptids. And we're not just talking about Bigfoot's Twitter account. (laughs) Okay, it wasn't that good of a joke. So I want to talk about some lesser known cryptids or also some Mothman we're going to talk about. He's not less. He's not lesser known. 
Maybe he's lesser known internationally. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know how well he is by it. Yeah, I stand I stand by it. I know a lot of people who follow our Instagram are like, I don't understand what Mothman is or why Americans like it so much. And I'm like, I don't think it's even Americans like it so much. I think it's specifically West Virginians and people from Appalachia. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, definitely that is true that people from West Virginia and Appalachia are, are big fans. Yeah, I don't think people in Montana are like, I'm diehard Mothman fan. Maybe. If you're in Montana and you're a diehard Mothman fan, let us know. <laughs> the truth is out there. Excellent. So the first cryptid that I'm going to talk about is the White Screamer, which was my nickname in high school. <laughs> oh, man. So cryptids are creatures that hang on the margins of our civilized, in quotes, society. They are liminal creatures. We've talked about liminal space before. It's that space between two things, not quite civilization, not quite wilderness. They push against, you know, the edges of what we understand, what we feel is like tamed wilderness. Um, So cryptids can be found where people are pushing into untamed space. And that pops up in like urban legends and stuff, even online, because as Mm. people have that like anxiety about like those kind of things too. again, the internet is untamed space, things that can, yeah, you guys know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Everyone knows what I'm talking about. But anyway, anytime there's that kind of like untamed space, you will find cryptids in that place. So this idea of untamed space, this is precisely the type of area that gave rise to the White Screamer, which is such a funny name. I'm sorry, guys. (laughs) So the White Screamer is a creature from Tennessee, and I made the mistake of researching it at night. (laughs) Rookie move. Yeah, instant regret. I don't know. Normally, I'm very skeptical and not ready to suspend my disbelief. But this one absolutely got to me at a point in the evening when my brain was ready to be upset. (laughs) I was fully picturing the story and fully into it. Because normally, I listen, some of the times when I'm reading these stories, I'm thinking of uh, like B-movie monsters where Mm. I'm just like, oh, that sounds lame, whatever. This one totally freaked me out. And so now I'm going to tell it to you. So in 1920, in a natural hollow in the thick forest rimming White Bluff, Tennessee, a family of nine decided to build their house. So it was a mother and a father and seven children. In my mind, it was kind of this like idyllic picture, just small house with a barn for a milk cow and probably some horses for going back and forth from town. The children out doing chores during the day, mom sewing clothes and churning butter. That is a picture I painted in my head. I've never been to a hollow in Tennessee. I don't know what it looked like. They may have had a car. In 1920? They could have. I guess. But not in my mind. That's fine. That's fine. I don't know what they were doing out there. But not long after the family had had gotten settled in the home in the hollow, they started hearing these terrifying screams that chilled their bones every single night. The children were shaking in fear every night as they listened to the blood-curdling screams coming from the vast, dark forest. One night, not being able to stand the sound of the screaming or watching the fear of his children, 
the father grabbed his shotgun and raced out into the forest in search of the sound of screaming. Every time he got close to the sound, he would see a flash of white jumping through the trees. And the sound of the screaming would shift in the woods. Mm. The father would quickly change direction, taking chase after the screams. Each time the sound shifted, he would think that he saw out of the corner of his eyes a streak of something white leaping away, chest out of view. He quickly became disoriented in the woods and didn't know where he was, but still he followed the screaming while holding onto his gun, the only thing that he had for protection in these unforgiving wood. <laughs> the only thing he had to protect himself was a shotgun. <laughs> when you don't know what you're battling, though, you never know. <laughs> That's true. How are you going to protect yourself against a ghost with a shotgun? Unless it's full of salt. <laughs> yeah, that's how. That, according to the lore of Supernatural. The documentary series. <laughs> Supernatural. Supernatural. The docudrama. But still he followed the screaming while holding on to his gun. The only thing that he had to protect him in these unforgiving woods. Suddenly the sound of the screams increased. It sounded like there were many voices screaming now, and he was getting closer and closer to the sound of the screaming. There was a break in the trees, and as he burst through the trees, the screaming stopped, and he was standing outside of his own home. Oh, no. Instantly, he knew why the screaming had increased, and terror overtook him as he came to understand why those same screams had gone silent. He raced into his home, but it was too late. There was his family slashed to ribbons, his wife and his seven children. Oh my gosh. Isn't that so scary? Yes, that's so scary. <laughs> and here's the reason why that is so scary, because you never see the yeah. thing. Like, like that is a situation that like, it doesn't take a big leap to get there to be like, you know, like something like that could happen yeah. for real Z's in your life, you know, like still very implausible. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's not going to happen to most people. But, it like, when you're thinking about, like, a cryptid story or whatever, like, you're expecting it to be a little, like, you could easily debate that that, like, that, no, that, that happened, but someone, you know, embellished it slightly. You know what I mean? Like, he, someone heard something outside their house, they went to go investigate, and then they heard screaming, and they're following the screaming, and they didn't, got turned around, they didn't know which way they were going, and it realized that it was their family screaming while they are being murdered. Yeah. Like, that's something that could have happened. Yeah. But you're right. One of the things that's terrifying about it is that, like, you never see what the what it was. Yeah. You just have this, like, terror and confusion, like, in the woods as, the like, the screaming is happening as, like, this creature that you can't get a good firm look at keeps, like, flitting in and out of, like, view. It's terrifying. And that's, again, something that can happen. Like, I've been in the woods. I've been camping. Animals make all sorts of crazy sounds, and it's sometimes like you hear a sound, you're like, I've never heard this animal. Yes. If it is an animal before, that is terrifying. I don't know where it is, what it's coming from, what kind of creature it yes. is. That that idea of like there being a creature in the woods, I will get back to. Okay. So I read recently that uh, you can't listen to a ghost story without getting a history lesson. And I feel like that is true for cryptids as well. <laughs> uh, so be prepared for a little bit of that sprinkled in. Okay, so for this story of the white screamer, some theories. For people who like supernatural explanations and for people who like to be no fun and ruin everything. <laughs> <laughs> 
I can be both. <laughs> so this area of Tennessee was home to a lot of Scots-Irish. So more so the further back you go in the history of the United States, but some people have speculated that the white screamer is related to the banshee. So for people who like the supernatural explanation, they say that, you know, the banshee came over with the Irish people as they were immigrating to the United States right before the Revolutionary War, and they stayed there. And so this idea that like a banshee came with them, because again, we haven't talked about the banshee, I don't think, since we talked about Dullahan, and we haven't talked about Dullahan since Sleepy Hollow. Their last album came out. <laughs> since their last <laughs> album came out. So if people don't remember, the banshee is an Irish fae type creature that announces the deaths and sometimes like foresees she's an omen of death. And it used to be of members of prominent families, like Royal families. So there used to be legends that if the men of prominent families were away fighting battles, the family would get kind of a heads up that somebody in their family died. If they saw a Banshee or heard a Banshee screaming um, that would tell them like, oh no, and kind of prepare them for finding out that like a family member had died while away on the battlefield. Because if somebody died away on the battlefield, you wouldn't know for a really long time because, you know, people had to travel and stuff to get that news back. And then later on, the Banshee became kind of a general omen of coming death for Irish people, just in general, in the lore. So the Banshee was not killing anybody. The Banshee was just announcing. Right. And so the theory is the Irish either brought the White Screamer slash Banshee over with them from Ireland when they immigrated. And in this story, the White Screamer didn't cause the deaths. Or at least that we don't see that in the story. That isn't told in the right. story that the White Screamer caused the deaths. So it could still, like the Banshee, be interpreted as an omen of coming death because it had been screaming for like a really long time in the woods. Mm -hmm. So the white screamer didn't necessarily kill the whole family. It just was telling the father or telling the family that death was coming. And that's like what happened. Right. Or if you want to believe that this didn't really happen, um, if you, you know, don't want to believe in the white screamer, I don't want to believe in the white screamer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, you could just say, you know, the White Screamer is a character that resonated with the locals because they were of uh, Irish descent. Hence, the story continued to have cultural currency with the Irish people there who were already familiar with the stories of the Banshee. So either way. But going back to what uh, you, Jeff, were saying about creatures. Yeah. So also of note, mountain lions or cougars scream mm. that is something that they are known for doing and terrorizing when people were like on the frontier and they were new to the american frontier and they would hear that screaming they didn't realize that it was coming from cougars so what's interesting about that in this area is that around this time in the united states in tennessee specifically cougars were being hunted and exterminated out of tennessee by the families that were settling into the Tennessee woods. So wow. around this time that they said of like 1920, yeah. cougars had almost completely been eradicated from the area because as families mm -hmm. were moving in, 
either, you know, because they needed to protect their livestock or their families or whatever, they were hunting down those cougars and getting rid of them. And so a lone cougar screaming in the night Mm. would be cause for like, you know, concern and worry and terror for a family that was like on the frontier. And so like, even just thinking, you know, of around that time, if people were hearing cougar, seeing cougar less and less, hearing cougar less and less, but then there was one that they were hearing screaming in the night and they weren't ready for it, that would, you know, give rise to their imagination, you know, kind of like running wild of what is out there screaming, should I go out and investigate or should I stay inside? Not to mention that, yeah, these animals were you know, being talked about people saying, hey, if you see one, make sure to shoot it, make sure to kill it. We're trying to like get rid of like all the cougar from the area. So yeah, those are a couple of the theories of the white screamer and like a story about the white screamer, which I didn't like. And I hope all of you didn't like it as well. (laughs) (laughs) Zero out of 10 disliked. Please don't tell that to me again, especially this late at night. Well, what's funny is like we joke about how like you don't like stories where like kids die. Yeah, And then I I tell the story. I'm like, oh, I hated that. I read that story at night, scared myself, and I hated it. Let me tell everybody. I'm just trying to imagine that they were adult children. You know what I mean? Sure. If you need to tell yourself that, (laughs) go for it. Considering all the other evidence, like, inside of the story of, like, you know, them, like, holding on to their father at night, like, holding on to him in terror. They're so scared every time they hear (laughs) the screaming. If you need to pretend that. I, that's what I do. And I get scared at night when I'm visiting my parents over, yeah. you know, the holidays. Yeah, there were seven, they they had seven kids and they were between the ages of 30 and 23. <laughs> <laughs> and they were... Hol- One a year for seven years. Yeah, and they were holding on to their father in fright. That's what happened. <laughs> None of them were small children. No, headcanon. <laughs> Whatever you got to tell yourself, man. So the next cryptid that we're going to be talking about is Mothman. And (laughs) I wanted Jeff to be the one to talk about Mothman because Jeff uh, grew up for a long time in West Virginia. Yes, I did. And I knew of Mothman from back in those days, which is kind of interesting too, because I was realizing when the Mothman Prophecies movie came out, which is where a lot of people kind of were first exposed to Mothman. I was, that was during the time that I was living in West Virginia was when that happened. So I remember that being like a big deal because it is like, you know, it is cool in West Virginia that we have like a thing. Yeah. There's uh, an artist that I follow that's really cool that does all sorts of Mothman art and like stickers and all sorts of stuff like that and goes around to all these, you know, like state fair and like county fairs and all stuff and selling this stuff and people like eat it up because they love the Mothman. But if you haven't heard of the Mothman, Here is the really cool thing about it. I found a lot of resources. I'm going to start with one that's called The Mothman of West Virginia, a case study in legendary storytelling. There's actually a chapter in a book called North American Monsters, which seems like a really fun and interesting book, very relevant to the topic we're talking about today. So if you like this episode, you may want to check out this book. But the first thing of this like preface goes on to talk about how, again, because of the Mothman prophecies, Mothman is like very popular in like popular culture because of that, but they don't know about the quote unquote true story origins. All right. So I'm going to tell you the story of the first sighting, first reported sighting of the Mothman as documented in the newspaper from Point Pleasant, West Virginia called the Point Pleasant Register on November 16th, which was a Wednesday in 1966. And the headline is 
my absolute favorite part because the headline is couple C man-sized bird creature something <laughs> <laughs> like so unsure of themselves. That's a top quality newspaper. <laughs> Which, you know, the headline was just reflecting the attitude of the people that they were reporting because the very first quote of the article is from one of the eyewitnesses that says, it was a bird or something. It definitely wasn't a flying saucer, which is like, that's a weird sort of a thing. Like a bird and a flying saucer don't really seem alike to me. But what happened was there were two Point Pleasant couples that were sitting together in a car around midnight. And they were in an area of town that's called the TNT area, which I was like, why is it called the TNT area? Is it talking about like TNT dynamite? Yes, it is because this area was near an old World War II like munitions factory. So that's kind of like what they became known for is like, oh, that's where they make the bombs. Yeah. So we're going to call it the TNT district. Um, so they see this creature and they call the police and the police show up by two o'clock in the morning, but they weren't able to find anything. But the the two young men of the couples were like dead serious. And the, the article makes a, a big point to say like they asserted strongly that they had not been drinking because like <laughs> someone tells you they see uh, a creature as they describe it here soon. You'll be like, what were you all on at the time? It's the 60s after yeah. all. Maybe you weren't drinking, but something else might have like, been happening. Mm, LSD much? So they said that when they saw this creature, they said it was like a man with wings that stood six or seven feet tall and it had a wingspan of 10 feet. Jeez. And big red glowing eyes that were on its face like about six feet apart. Like it had kind of a big Did you say six head. feet apart? <laughs> six Inches apart. That would be oh, like yeah, a hammerhead yeah, shark. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? How wide is its head? And they sat six inches apart. The awesome. eyes, glowing red eyes. Sat I'm sorry, I heard you say apart. six feet. I was confused and scared. Six inches. <laughs> and so they said that they saw this creature on three separate occasions, kind of standing at these different locations, and that it moved between them super fast. Like when it flew, it flew at about 100 miles an hour, they said. But, and this is also a funny detail, that it was a clumsy runner, <laughs> which is just hilarious. It's like, it's standing around there and they're like, it's like, oh, time to take flight. He like runs a couple of weird clumsy steps before whoosh, flying and then it's like swift. It's like a penguin. Yeah. You know, penguins on the land, like very clumsy. They waddle around. They're known yeah. for that. Get them in the water. Those things. Whoosh, no, this is. that. That's their element. This to me is kind of like what I was talking about with when I said like normally cryptid stories sound really hokey to me like i picture it's just yeah. like b-movie monsters and like this right. like, like the guy's a clumsy runner because like the suit is very cumbersome to run yeah. in in the monster movie but like when they get him up on the wire that's when yeah. they can really yeah, sell then the he's really soaring and so yeah i'm just like imagining it in my mind and it's like oh it's hard to be like terrified when you know the people are like describing him as like he was really clumsy runner but yeah no continue i'm loving it Ba -da -ba -ba -ba. I'm loving it. Makes me really question the journalistic integrity of the Point Pleasant Register <laughs> in 1966. Because it's like, well, or maybe just like Deputy Millard Halstead. Because in the article, they said that Deputy Millard Halstead said that he saw some dust in the area that the, the Mothman was seen. And it's like, oh, like it's in, it's, it, there's some dust around this coal field. Maybe it's from the coal field, but it could have been the creature. Like, he's trying to make up excuses. Yeah. Like, hey, I believe you guys. Like, here we are in a coal field. There's coal <laughs> dust everywhere. But, 
But you, it could, that could have been the creature. I believe yeah. you. Maybe it could have been. I don't know. I'm not saying some of this it. black dust could have come off of the wings <laughs> of a giant bird man. I'm not calling you a liar. I'm not calling you drunks. I'm just. It could be. I'm believing you. Which you know, I'm remembering at this point that this is actually like a you know these are real people. So I'm sorry if I'm uh, besmirching your good name, but actually I'm not. Anyway, <laughs> um. So one of the guys said, like, they saw this happening and seeing the, this creature scared the crap out of them. Because, again, six feet tall, glowing red eyes, 10-foot wingspan. Yeah, that's like, horrifying. That is a creature, whether it be, you know, like monstrous or not, it, that's like something that could be dangerous to you. Yeah. If it's that big, you know? And so one of the eyewitnesses, name, last name Scarberry, he's like, I'm a hard guy to scare, but last night I was all for getting out of there. <laughs> and so they did just that. They're like, okay, we're in a car. It's ambulatory. That's why they call it an, an automobile. I was going to say ambulance, but it's not an ambulance. <laughs> it's just a regular car. It's mobile. That's what I meant to say, not ambulatory. It's mobile. That's why they call it an automobile. And so they start driving away, and the Mothman starts following them. And they're like, it's hovering gliding over the car until they drive all the way to the National Guard Armory. And then they went downtown and they turned around and there they saw it again. And they're like, it looked like it was waiting for us there. And then when they saw it there, it like scurried across the field. And then later it had flown and like kind of scraped across the top of the car. One of the eyewitnesses then says like, apparently it seems like it's afraid of light. And maybe like it thought that it was scaring us off because we had the headlights on the cars. It was like scared of us and was trying to scare us away, which I'm like, oh, maybe this is a misnomer if it's the Mothman and it's scared of light. Maybe Mr. Millette got it wrong and it was very drawn by the light. And that's why it was yeah. in the car. That's my own editorializing. Anyway, but the young man said that when they saw the creature's eyes, they glowed red, but only when their lights shined on the creature. And... This is one of the things, like when they shine their lights on it, that's when it seemed to want to get away. And that's when it kind of was like starting to scurry back into the field and things like that. And they were saying that it looked like a man with wings. Like it looked like a human person with wings, but that the head, like besides the eyes, wasn't, quote, an outstanding characteristic. So like nothing stood out but the head except for those glowing red eyes. And they were saying they thought that maybe the creature lived in the abandoned power plant nearby in one of the huge like boiler buildings. Yeah. Because they they said that there were pigeons that lived in all of the buildings around like that old plant, except for that one building where the boiler was. And they're like, something's scaring them pigeons away from there, man. And uh, the one guy, Scarberry, is like, look, if I'd seen it by myself, I wouldn't have said anything. But there were four of us there and we all saw it. And so we knew that we weren't Seeing things, so that's why we had to call the police. Yeah. And they're like, okay, it didn't look like a bat, but it kind of looked like what you would visualize an angel to look like. A person with these big wings. And the last time they saw it was in this other place, kind of near the road where they ended up. They heard, like, the flapping of wings, and this bird-like creature just rose straight up in the air. Not, like, forward or backwards, but just, like, up like a helicopter, they say. Helicopter, helicopter. They're like... I don't know how to explain it. It's not like any animal that I've seen before. And uh, the end of the article, it's like, are they going back to look for the creature? The guy, Millette, says, yes, this afternoon and again tonight. And then the other guy's Scarberry is like, today, but tonight? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> like, scared to go back there after dark to look for this thing. 
which so much to say about this. One, it's kind of a fun story. Yeah. Which this isn't the end of the story, Katrina. This is only the <gasps> bum, bum, bum. But also fascinating, like it's in the newspaper. Police deputies, city police officers didn't see the Mothman, but they seemed to believe that these people weren't trying to pull a hoax. They didn't think that they were drunk. They didn't think that they were under the influence of anything. They, they saw something. Yeah. What that may be, no one knows. And all four of them, too. They quote the, the men there, but like they're... I think it says that they were married. Their wives were there as well. Like all four of them yeah. saw this creature. So the first thing that I was wondering, especially after reading this article, was how did it come to be known as the Mothman? When they didn't say it looked like a moth at all, they kept calling it a bird-like creature. Yeah. They made, a, made sure to say that it didn't look like a bat, but it looked like an angel. So it's like all these other things that it could have been. And it was afraid of the lights, seemingly. It's like, that doesn't seem very moth-like to me. But one kind of theory, and I don't know where it started from, but they're saying that it was a reference. They're saying, they say that it was a reference, and this is from the article, The Mothman of West Virginia, published in North American Monsters, that it came from the TV show Batman. Because Batman was a TV show in the yeah. 60s, the Adam West one. And, like, again, that's kind of one of those things that make sense. Like, it didn't look anything like a bat. Like, people were like, oh, I could imagine that at some point, maybe the reporter or what is it? Yeah. He's like, oh, like a man with wings, like on the Batman t- television show? Like, no, it didn't look like a bat. And actually, it's not even from the show, I guess, but it was like because of the show. But in the comics, there is a character called Killer Moth, which looks like a man that's gray, which they they described too. Like the coloring on this thing was like gray, kind of like fuzzy. Yeah. And they're like, oh, maybe it looked kind of like that. So Killer Moth and then somehow Batman Killer Moth becomes Mothman and that name just kind of sticks. So that happens. 1966. In 1968, the Silver Bridge, which crosses the Ohio River Mm -hmm. from Point Pleasant, into Ohio. Did I say 1968? You did say 1968. 1967. 1967 in December. So about one year, one month later, Silver Bridge collapses during rush hour traffic. Oh, geez. Several cars plummet into the water and 46 people were killed. Oh, man. Including several people that had claimed to have witnessed the Mothman. I couldn't find who those people were. I don't think that it was the people from that original story. But after that happened, that came out in the newspaper, lots of people around this town yeah. started to see the Mothman. And one of the things they say, too, is like this was a small town, maybe around that time, about like 4,000 people living yeah. in the actual town itself. And people knew these people that had seen the Mothman. And they were like, these aren't crazy people. They're just normal people. They're our neighbors. We know them. Yeah. Like they, they believe them. Other people started seeing the Mothman. And in 13 months from the first sighting, this bridge collapses. Man. And so they start having this these two events be connected. Mothman shows up. Lots of people start seeing him. And then this, this bridge collapsed. And so people started kind of like theorizing that like the Mothman was someone there coming to announce and try to warn people like, hey, yeah. something bad is going to happen. And really interestingly, in that same book, North American Monsters, they talk about what you brought up earlier, the Banshee. Yeah. And they're talking about there were people, again, like Scotch-Irish heritage living in West Virginia. And this is like Western West Virginia, which borders like Kentucky, Tennessee, that kind of place. This is more towards, obviously, Ohio because Ohio River and all that. Yeah. Similar sort of an area. And so they talked about how, again, the Banshee, Dulahan, a version of kind of the same thing, would yeah. come and would announce the deaths of people. And so they're saying, oh, like the Mothman was coming at a place where death was going to happen. And, you know, some of the evidence being like some of the people that actually saw Mothman died in this accident. Yeah, this this really freaky, horrific 
accident. Like it's yeah. worse than like just like a car accident because it, it's like no, this is like a oh, yeah. bridge collapse. This is giantly horrific. And I think meaningful too because it was like the whole town experienced all of this together. Like the seeing yeah. the Mothman, even though not everybody saw it, multiple people saw it. They were it was in the newspaper. They were all experiencing this together. And yeah. then again, this tragedy that happens is something that they all are experiencing together in some way. Like they knew people, everyone knew people. They've all, that, yeah, that they've all done. crossed that bridge multiple times. It it could have been any of them is probably, yeah. you know, what's going through their minds is like, that could have been me. Yeah. And so this was a thing that was like in this area, you know, the whole Mothman thing, obviously the, the bridge collapse became big news. And it was actually one of the things that was like, there were the way the bridge was designed, all sorts of things that had happened. Like there were no fail safes. Like there were many places where a single thing goes wrong and like yeah. the entire, it's a catastrophic event, which is exactly what happened. Yeah. There was like a chain that was holding one thing and this one link of the chain breaks and it causes this catastrophic accident. So it led to a lot of other bridges being inspected and fixed and avoiding similar tragedies. Just like one of the few things that comes from this. Yeah. Besides the story of the Mothman. So again, it's a local thing, but it doesn't really take off until 1975 when a guy named John Keel writes a book called The Mothman Prophecies, which is what the movie is based off of. John Keel, very interesting fellow, described in the Mothman of West Virginia article as New York journalist and ufologist. And so he travels to Point Pleasant, West Virginia, starts interviewing people about all of these things that had happened. And also in the same book, talking about other strange phenomena that had been happening. And this is where some of the interesting things start to come together in the beginning of that like article where it talked to about like, it didn't look like a flying saucer. Well, this guy, Joe Keel is traveling around, taking in stories of people that had purportedly seen UFOs, flying saucers, aliens, been abducted, had some sort of contact with extraterrestrial creatures. Yeah. And so he's kind of putting these two things together that the Mothman might be some sort of extraterrestrial creature that was come to to warn people or whatever. Yeah. So he's putting this whole thing hmm. together where it's adding this whole extra element to it, which is kind of interesting because we said we weren't going to get into aliens today, but we are. It always comes back to aliens. And it gets even better, Katrina, going down into this like UFO area. Let's do it. Let's dive. Let's dive into UFO alien lore. <laughs> so lots of the people, when Keel was visiting the Ohio Valley interviewing people, and he was like, you know, his book was considered, was like, at least from his perspective, it was, you know, journalism. He was reporting what these people had purportedly seen. Yeah. You know, there is some, like he's described as a ufologist. It seems like he does believe them. Yeah. Probably, but you know, he's reporting these things that, that witnesses and other people had seen. And so lots of the people that had seen Mothman, similarly to people who had seen UFOs or yeah. claimed to have seen UFOs, also reported that they were visited in these really weird situations by people wearing black clothes, black ties, driving brand new black cars that seemed like they were not that they were like foreign individuals. Like they weren't from the United States. They spoke funny. They kind of looked a little different than you would expect from the people that lived in the areas that they were living. And they wiped so they this, wiped their minds. And this was, yeah, I was just going to say, here come the men in black. So you've got oh Mothman gosh. appearing to people and then the men in black, the MIB, coming and showing up and, and also interacting with these people. And there's all sorts of theories about who MIBR, which interesting, interestingly enough, like Keel didn't come up he wasn't the first one to kind of report on this whole thing in the Men in Black, but he apparently was the one that that gave him the MIB Men in Black like moniker that kind of stuck. So he can be proud of that. Here come the Men in Black. And things get a little weirder still in that as John Keel is investigating these things for this 
book. I don't know if he was planning on writing a book, but he was just, you know, doing his journalistic duties and trying to- Research. Yeah, doing the research. Before even the bridge collapsed, John Keel was kind of in the area of the Ohio Valley, contacting people that had said that they were contacted by, they had seen UFOs or seen glowing orbs and stuff in the lights. So before- the bridge collapse actually happened. He says that he was getting phone calls, among them talking about earthquakes, assassination attempts, other things like that, that there were some that were talking to some sort of unspecified disaster that was going to happen on the Ohio River. Wow. And so after, obviously, the bridge collapse happens, the things are coming together. It's like Ohio River. There are also mo- sightings of a creature or yeah. something strange happening before it happened. I mean, what, what it's sounding like to me that you're saying is that it's crazy that, like, not only... You know, did people report after the fact that something bad was going to happen on the Ohio River and that there was an omen? Because, I mean, backdating prophecies is, you know. Right. It it is what it is. But what's fascinating is that Keel had gotten, like, kind of these things told to him before it ended up happening. Right. So he claims in a book that was written after all these events had happened, which is something that people bring up as being like a point of like, okay. Yeah. Um, and there's some people that say they that, you know, there's evidence that they talk about how the stories that he was telling to people at the time, but, you know, before things actually happened were different from the things that he put in his book and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. I'm not going to speculate on that. But the whole thing is he claims that he was getting calls like this and several of them about the Ohio River disaster before this thing happened. And then also further proof that they were talking about was that after the bridge collapse happened, that in the Ohio Valley, in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, the sightings of Mothman or other anomalous creatures, other floating orbs, whatever, decreased substantially. Which again is how they came to think that it was yeah. the Mothman kind of prophesying of this thing sort of happening, trying to warn people, which is really fascinating. Like the, the sightings of the paranormal were ramping up and increasing in number and like kind of reaching like a fever pitch. And then the bridge collapsed. And then there was kind of like a dying off of like these sightings. Yeah. So we've covered all these supernatural kind of explanations for it. Yeah. But there were people that had some other explanations as to what these people were seeing, thinking that this bridge collapse was a coincidence that was happening in time. Again, yeah. 13 months is like, that. it's a good bit of time later, you know, I yeah. guess it is close that people have been seeing it around that same time. But again, it's like, it means more looking back on it than it would if nothing had happened, Yeah, you know, like it would not be meaningful except for, oh, this thing was in this, the place at this time. The police and others believed that this original couple, at least, actually saw something, right? Yeah. But they weren't all convinced that it was this supernatural creature. They thought it might have been something more natural in its origin. What do you think it might have been? Like, I would feel like a stork, a crane, like just one of those like bigger birds that is either kind of like maybe sick, injured, dirty, like discolored to a point where like maybe they didn't know what they were looking at in the dark. Yeah. So one person, I think it was one of the police officers, said that it was most likely a sandhill crane. Sandhill cranes will do that to you. Which is interesting because we've heard about sandhill cranes being confused for other cryptids before many times. And yeah. again, it matches the description. They're very big birds. I think you're I think that's a bonus episode. Oh damn it. No, you're fine. So Jeff is talking about the Jersey Devil. We did a bonus episode about the Jersey Devil. One of the things that people said that they think it probably was, was a sandhill crane. That, like, cranes are very large birds. 
If you're not used to seeing them, they pop out like all of a sudden. They are very large and they roost in trees. And so you're not expecting them to be so high up and so big. And then when they open up their wings, they're kind of terrifying to look at. And they are awkward when they're on the ground. <laughs> so Very awkward and clumsy runners. Yeah. So some like counterpoint that people say to this is that like sandhill cranes don't actually really live in this area of West Virginia at all, but they do migrate close by through those areas apparently. And so that's one of the things they're thinking too, because it's also like it was one lost by itself. Again, yeah. maybe potentially injured, who knows, that had somehow gotten off. And so it was behaving strangely yeah. and interacting with people that are not used to seeing those t- types of animals nearby, you know, something yeah. that they'd never seen around because it's not from around there. Yeah. But it's not out of the po- you know, realm of possibility that that one could appear and especially be acting weird because of some other sort of a malady, right? Yeah. Regardless, the story lived on. Book comes out, is a big hit, is republished several times. I think like in the 90s and then again in the 2000s when the movie comes out. The movie comes out, becomes an even bigger thing. That leads to this huge revival, especially in West Virginia, especially in Point Pleasant, yeah. of the Mothman, right? And so since then, and this is probably the, my favorite thing about the whole thing is that Mothman has become, again, super popular in West Virginia, you know, nationally, somewhat internationally. But they have every year in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, a Mothman festival. There is a statue of the Mothman in downtown Point Pleasant. Yeah. Uh, a very beautiful, shiny silver statue with a glorious uh, buttocks that people like to touch and get their pictures with. Yeah. Which just adds to the flavor. There's a Mothman museum there. And like thousands of people flock to Point Pleasant, West Virginia in September, the third weekend of September every single year to celebrate the Mothman, which is great because, again, Point Pleasant, another small town in West Virginia that can have something really cool that they could all, you know, brings the brings the people together, especially, I don't know, there's, to me there's something especially kind of beautiful about it. Uh, some people miss it, but they do also have like these like memorials and things to the victims of that bridge collapse yeah and so like in some way that this mothman story has been like is a way for like a community in my opinion again i don't know it just seems like a way for a community to come together and kind of like process this really tragic thing that has happened in their town in a way that doesn't have to be sad and solemn and tragic but that can be kind of like interesting and then now it's become even more fun yeah with the current iteration of of the fervor yeah because it's like the mothman kind of got tied to that local grief and so it's not even you know that much of a stretch that like people in their minds at the time connected mothman with the bridge collapse and so it makes sense that like at the same time that they would be enjoying Mothman for the phenomenon that like Mothman has been, you know, book wise, movie wise, like culturally that at the same time, they as a community still mentally link the tragedy of the bridge collapse with their um, enjoyment of Mothman. Like there's still this like reverence for what happened. Humans are so interesting. (laughs) Yeah. And it's interesting too, because John Keel himself said in like 2002, I think it's in the, kind of the note that he wrote to go with the new publication of the Mothman Prophecies book that he heard sometime after his original visits to the Ohio Valley Yeah, that the people of the Ohio Valley, Point Pleasant, had taken his visitation and his like, you know, collecting of these stories and seeing all these supernatural things happening in other areas besides even just the Mothman as some sort of like sinister omen. And so his thing, it says, it had indeed been a sinister omen, one that confirmed their 
meaning the area residents' religious beliefs and superstitions, so a new legend was born. And I think that really sums it up well. Again, going back to talking about the Scots-Irish ancestry of the people, the banshees, that's again, that came up in another story. Yeah, no, that's a, that's incredible because I wouldn't have thought that the white screamer would be connected to the Mothman at all. So that's... Yeah. So it's like taking these things where it's combining, you know, superstitions and other things and religious beliefs and taking things that have happened and like putting those things all together and finding connections between things that may or may not be connected in reality. But the very end of this book chapter on the Mothman by David Clark in North American Monsters sums it up really well to explain kind of how this came together. And he gives a lot of the credit to John Keel, making it all kind of congeal. He says, John Keel's role as a storyteller who interprets the disparate stories in the form of an overarching narrative was pivotal in providing the story its latent power and longevity. The subsequent sharing of these stories in literature, film, and online has encouraged others to confront and examine their view of the world and what is possible and impossible via the medium of the story. In a letter to the Mothman Witnesses, written in March 15th, 1970, Keel recognized that West Virginia's Mothman is now part of history. In time, it will become a folk legend. And that's exactly what has happened. And finally, David Clark says this. This reinvigorated legend has been embraced by members of the community in Point Pleasant, which played a part alongside the movie in its recent revival. It's so interesting how you, you know, you brought up Mothman, Point Pleasant, that there's a museum, that there's this statue that people go to, that there's also like a memorial to the people in the town um, that died and the bridge collapse. There's this like infrastructure because I, I was reading in the unidentified mythical monsters, alien encounters and our obsession with the unexplained by Colin Dickey. I absolutely love Colin Dickey. I recommend his books, Ghostland and The Afterlife of the Saints. Those are the those these are the three that I've read. He's written other ones that are on my list to read. But just beware that he will <laughs> ruin ghost stories for you. <laughs> And in this book, The Unidentified Mythical Monsters, Alien Encounters, and Our Obsession with the Unexplained, he really goes into, you know, how different legends are a product of their culture. He seems very skeptical about, you know, the existence of such things. But very smart, very great, like, research. Absolutely love him. But he has this quote that says, Cryptids these days are all about tourism. Nearly every well-known cryptid has a hometown, and nearly every one of those towns has embraced their local celebrity. Whatever their origin stories, eventually such creatures become part of the fabric of the local community. I thought that was super fascinating, super insightful, just because, you know, when I think about a lot of towns in America that have their own kind of little, whatever their cryptid is, they kind of like go all in, whether they are celebrating their connection with like Bigfoot legends or with like little sea monsters in their tiny little lakes or aliens. Like they kind of they go all in for that thing. Kind of a quick little example of that is our last cryptid this evening. And this will be kind of a quick story because it's the lizard man. The Lizard Man in South Carolina. So to set the story, this one happens in the 
Dark Hours of the Morning, June 29th, 1988. So there was a teenage boy and he was driving home from work when one of his tires blew out and he was on the edge of this one like kind of like swampy area. And I don't know, listen, I've driven in South Carolina in the dark from what airport was it, Jeff? Charleston. Driving from Charleston to Myrtle Beach, and we had flown into Charleston in the dark, and it was like a couple hours drive, I think. All I remember, it was it was super, super dark outside. The road did not really have that many lights, and thick, thick trees covered with like Spanish moss that's just like flowing and blowing in the wind. The whole time that we were driving, I was like looking at my husband and I was like, oh my gosh, this is where serial killers are. And like in the beams of his light, I was like searching for movement on the side of the road. See, this is a story about me now and not about this kid. (laughs) I'm just imagining this like teenage boy. I can imagine like the whole thing in my mind of this like teenage boy, 1988, his car, you know, blows a tire. He pulls over so he can change his tire. And as he's out there in the dark of this like side of this swamp, he starts to hear a sound and it sounded like somebody was running towards him. And the sound was getting louder and louder and louder. And then suddenly out in the darkness, he suddenly sees a figure emerge and it has bright red eyes, green scaly skin and these long black claws on its three fingers. And it is seven feet tall. A lizard man. So the boy quickly like jumps into his car for safety and like closes the door. And the lizard man jumps on top of his car and starts just like ripping and clawing at like the mirrors on the side and the like gouging the roof of the vehicle. So this kid like takes off forward in his car, but this lizard man's holding on. So he slams on his brake. So the lizard man rolls off and like rolls into a ditch back into the swamp, I guess. (laughs) I can't remember. I think it was they like they didn't when he got home, he like didn't tell anybody what had happened. The car was just like, like banged up and stuff. And they didn't tell anybody. But a couple weeks later, somebody called the police and reported that their car had been vandalized and they had stopped their car, like, or parked their car close to the swamp, something like that. And when they came back to like retrieve their car, Um, It said the fender was ripped off, an antenna was bent, deep scratches along the body of of the car. And, you know, they were reporting this vandalism. And that's when this boy found out about this. And he was like, oh, actually, that same thing happened to me. And that's when he, like, told people the story of when he was attacked by this, like, lizard man. And so I guess, like, throughout the summer, several times cars were getting like attacked like after this had been put into like the newspaper you know people were saying that their cars had been attacked and there had been more vandalism and all this stuff there ended up being this man to well after it was in the newspaper and these things were happening somebody had said oh if if we catch there was like a reward for if they caught this creature or whatever. And so this one man ended up calling the police saying that like he had seen lizard man and had shot lizard man until it come out. So the police came out, 
you know, this guy had shot off his gun. There was like a pool of blood like in the vicinity. So they like took some tests or whatever. It wasn't until that guy was being charged with, I believe it was like having a firearm. He wasn't supposed to have a firearm um, Mm -hmm. that he admitted that like he hadn't really seen (laughs) Lizard Man and that he had shot at some, I think it was like blood from like an animal or something that he had Mm -hmm. purposely put out there because he was trying, you know, this hoax or whatever. Years later, the story of even that first boy you know, doesn't really hold up to scrutiny. What it sounds like is probably this kid got into like a car accident or something. Something had happened and he's trying to say that like, oh yeah, no, I was attacked by a lizard man and (laughs) it's not my fault. That's why the car is messed up. Not because I drove it into a ditch. (laughs) And, you know, so the, the story kind of, you know, fell apart, but... Here's the thing (laughs) with once these stories are kind of like out, once they are like known about people kind of don't really care. Like, (laughs) like they don't, they don't care that it's a hoax. In fact, like they hate it. If you were to say that it's a hoax, you're ruining the fun. You're ruining it. You're like, be cool. And if you go to discoversouthcarolina.com, they have an article that's about the lizard man. You know, they have like kind of a picture gallery of like different things. And I love the right at the beginning of the article, it says Scotland has the Loch Ness monster. The Pacific Northwest has the Sasquatch. Puerto Rico has the Chupacabra. Nepal, the Yeti. They can't hold a candle to the lizard man. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, that's so funny. I love you know that it's like they they call him South Carolina's very own homegrown monster. I love that. I feel like that really speaks to, you know, kind of like what Colin Dickey was saying about every cryptid has its like hometown and it becomes yeah. like part of the lore and the fabric of that town, like people embrace it. Whether you want to say cynically that some of these monsters get created for like the tourism industry or whatever or that they get kind of co-opted for tourism. Mm. There's stuff to be said about that. But, you know, I think it is so interesting that the way that these stories that might have started off kind of terrorizing and, like, titillating a town and, you know, causing kind of, like, an outcry or whatever of people being scared, announcing these things, it kind of circles back to this, like, all-in-good-fun place which is so interesting or maybe it just says something about us today that we want to love our little freaks that we 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 see and we give pet names you know like Loch Ness monster became Nessie and Uh you know people are making like little Mothman plush toys and you know that it's just become this thing that's kind of like sweet and endearing when that's not how (laughs) they started out. I think it just says something interesting about us that we want to take the things that, you know, spoke of terror to the people that created them. We want to soften their edges and turn them into plush toys. The thing that's interesting too about those last two stories is like the, the term that I had to go back to Dr. Gina Jorgensen's book, Folklore 101, to look up, which is ostension, which is something I'd never heard of before reading Folklore 101, which is this whole thing of 
you know, you have the Mothman festival and all that stuff now. And Ostension is, um, in her book, Dr. Jean Jorgensen quotes, folklorist Carl Lindahl, who defined Ostension as the process through which people live out a legend, making it real in the most palpable sense. This includes a range of motivations from those calculatingly conscious or the result of unconscious delusional compulsion. Putting a little harsh there, Carl, but some of the examples that, that Dr. Jorgensen says is like going to visit a haunted house or a cemetery, yeah. making a pilgrimage to a religious site, you know, even things like mutilating cattle and other animals like happened in Ohio in the 1970s that was, you know, attributed to UFOs or cults yeah. and things like that. And that's like what Mothman has become in this way. And again, we've done it in like a fun kind of way. I think in the same way that lots of these things are like visiting a haunted house yeah. or whatever. People want to go to Point Pleasant, West Virginia to make that experience kind of like real for themselves, even in kind of like a playful way. Yeah. Like you go there. And I've had the same thing sort of happen to me where, you know, we've talked about like ghosts or whatever on on this podcast before and how we feel about that. But it's like, I don't know if ghosts are around and you can like encounter them or something. But it's like, I went to Savannah and I went on a ghost tour going to all these haunted places. Yeah. And like, at least for the time that I was on that tour, I believed in ghosts or at least I yeah. wanted to believe. So it was like, I was going out and like it says, living it out and making it real for myself, if even in just that moment, which I think is kind of the the playful thing that happens when we go to Point Pleasant, West Virginia to see Mothman. That's what you know, the South Carolina Board of Tourism is trying to do when they're trying yeah. to make you come to Anderson or whatever, where they're taking Lizard Lizard Man and saying like, hey, come and make the Lizard Man real for yourself by coming here and looking at the Spanish moss hanging down yeah. from these trees and imagine the Lizard Man actually there, which is really interesting because again, Carl's thing of saying, you know, calculatingly conscious like Board of Tourism trying to get people to come in or, you know, other people who... I don't know. I don't want to go into the compulsionally delusional part of the whole <laughs> aspect. But I guess without putting such harsh words on it, like to some extent, I feel like even, you know, John Keel in a way, like he was going and he was doing journalistic work or whatever, but going to these places where people had seen yeah. things like and how that again, like his visit making like made it real for other people. The fact that he was coming as a journalist to calculate these things like that made it real for the people that actually live there. And it just kind of all feeds back into itself. And so it's like kind of through ostension. Again, we kind of talked about the end of the section about Mothman, about how that's part of how these things become more and more real to all of us in like a cultural sense. So this is a quote that I found inside of The Unidentified Mythical Monsters, Alien Encounters, and Our Obsession with the Unexplained by Colin Dickey. Uh, but this is actually a quote that he was using um, that is from Curtis McDougall from the book Hoaxes. Regardless of the degree of belief he gives to their existence in the more or less remote past, the modern traveler to faraway places no longer fears meeting a centaur, unicorn, sphinx, phoenix, rock, dodo, dragon, gargoyle, mermaid, behemoth, pegasus, seven-headed hydra, manticore, satyr, or other fabulous creatures, many of them partly human, which stud the accounts of earlier seagoing and land tourists. Nevertheless, belief in the existence of strange monsters as yet unrepresented in contemporary zoological gardens continues today almost as strong as in the days of Marco Polo, Benjamin of Tadila, Pliny, Sir John Mandeville, and other trailblazers into the vast unknown when so-called civilization was restricted to Europe and nearby parts of Asia Minor and Northern Africa. Thank you for listening to The Fairy Tellers. 
If you enjoy what we're doing, please leave us a review or share us with your friends. Also consider supporting us on Patreon for access to exclusive bonus content, including outtakes and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash thefairytellers. Special thanks to Andrew Foray for our music and to Clarice Inge for our artwork. And of course, a big thank you to all our patrons. Without all of you, this show wouldn't be possible. Fairy tales are always more interesting when something is added to them. Each new telling recharges the narrative, making it crackle and hiss with cultural energy. Maria Tatar And that's how cryptids are born. When a man and a moth love each other very much. That was a a little bit of a bestiality joke for, for our fans. <laughs>